Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. And we're live in 3, 2, 1. Hey, we're back. Episode 27 of the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast, as always, brought to you by 5MinuteBibleStudy.com. Go check out the website, see what's new. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and I think that's it. And I really don't know why I use the plural personal pronoun us, because there's really just one me, Aaron Batty, your host. Okay, um, well, we're going to get two episodes in two weeks. That's something. After not having done one for the entire year, two episodes in two weeks. This week is about figurative language, how to interpret figurative language. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, so I just figured I would get down to it and share some of the things I've been learning, things that hopefully will help you, as you, especially as you read prophecy. But even throughout the books of the Bible, every single book of the Bible uses figurative language. So this is going to come in real handy in your Bible reading, I believe. So, so in this episode, we're just going to have the main dish on that subject. But before we get into that, let's hear from our sponsors. Do you have any books in your house besides the Bible? Well, you shouldn't. As every good Christian knows, you shouldn't read anything at all besides the Bible, because anything else is liable to have air in it. Get those books written by men and burn them whole with the book burner bin. Now, I know what you're thinking. We can't read books besides the Bible, but we can listen to human thoughts and opinions spoken from the pulpit of the church. But that's different. It just is. And you're probably saying to yourself, why is it wrong to read human-authored books, but it's okay to talk to a brother in Christ and listen to his opinions and thoughts? Well, it just is. Stop thinking such silly, illogical, thoughtful questions. Stop it. Buy the nice, shiny book burner bin that will incinerate your books to kingdom come. Flick your books into the bin and feel freed, knowing that you will no longer have to use your mind to distinguish right from wrong anymore. Because everything that's wrong is now in flames. Book burner bin. This is a fake ad. To purchase any books published by 5-Minute Bible Study, reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or the 5-Minute Bible Study website. Read with discretion. Use your God-given mind. Be wise. And it's time for the main dish. I did say something in the intro of this episode that I wanted to clarify before we get into this study. I did say that every book of the Bible uses figurative language. What I did not mean by that is that every book of the Bible is uh, primarily sorry, figurative language. What I really mean when I say that is that every book of the Bible will use to some volume, whether great or small, figures of speech, at the very least. And I, I was realizing just the other day, uh, thinking about figurative language in the Bible, really, how we use figures of speech a lot. I say things all the time like, I stepped in hot water today, and that might be at work where I got in trouble with my manager because of something I said. Uh, By the way, that hasn't (laughs) happened uh, recently, at least. Uh, Anyway, if I say I I stepped in hot water today, that's a figure of speech. Everybody knows most of the time, given the context, that I'm not talking about literally having stepped in hot water. In the South, it's not uncommon for people to say, that's a fur piece. And 
for being Southern for far. That's a far length of ground to walk, maybe, from one place to another. Um, that's further than I want to go, maybe, is what they're implying. When they say it, that's a fur piece, the word piece there, is, that's a figure of speech that by itself doesn't make a lot of sense. There is some figurative amount, uh, level of understanding there, but it stands for something that does have literal meaning and expresses an actual tangible thought. One figure of speech that has been common to this podcast, previously I did a segment called the foot and mouth syndrome. And whenever we say uh, he put his foot in his mouth, we obviously don't literally mean that he put his foot in his mouth. That's an expression. And people typically pick up on that very quickly. Now, if you were a foreigner visiting from another country, um, that's the difficulty of learning new languages. Things like, that's an idiom, uh, foot and mouth. You'd have to learn that, and it would take a little bit, a lot. <laughs> it would take a long time for you to really understand that when we say he put his foot in his mouth, it's not literal, it's figurative. That is a difficulty of um, learning a new language, and by nature of Bible translation, we're talking about taking an original language in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, translating that into English, a second language, and by nature of that, many of the idioms, the short expressions that I just referred to, they are sometimes not brought out in translation very well. What I did want to impress upon you from the very onset is that we do use figures of speech. We do understand figurative language in our own common vernacular, in our own daily discourse, and we don't think twice about it. We use these figures of speech so much, they're familiar to us, and we immediately recognize, ah, well, he didn't actually put his foot in his mouth today. In the same way, there are simple common sense rules that we can use in our reading of Scripture that would tell us a statement in Scripture is not being meant literally. Uh, context will tell, and when we talk about context, we're talking about all levels of context. The immediate chapter that you're reading, that narrow, small context would help you to identify a lot of times whether a word or a phrase is being meant figuratively or literally by the author. But as we'll find out in some of these interpretive rules that we're going to go through in just a second, sometimes the greater context of Scripture and what we know about God, that context will help us to, to find whether a, a phrase is figurative or literal. Now, we're not going to exhaust the discussion on this subject today. There's absolutely no way to do that, in an hour at least. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick with six common sense rules of interpretation, that is, rules for interpreting figurative language. And I call these common sense because you don't need to cite a dictionary for them. You don't need to cite an encyclopedia. You can. We just know these by intuition. Um, God has given us minds, and the intuition that He has given us, the use of our minds will tell us that uh, Jeremiah is not actually a literal iron pillar when God describes him as this in Jeremiah 1 verse 18. So we have six rules here, and we're just going to get right into it. We're going to talk about several scriptures. And by the way, I wanted to also indicate that I am getting these rules. I just took these directly from... Wayne Jackson's book, Biblical Figures of Speech. It's a very good book. I recommend it. It's not long. 
Not every single thing in the book do I agree with, but let's get right into these six rules that come from his book. And I'm going to use some of the illustrations from Scripture to bring out the, the rule and help illustrate it to you. And then some of these I've added um, my own examples from Scripture to help um, to help nail down the sense of the rule so you'll understand it. Okay, the first rule is when you're reading a scripture and the sense of the word or phrase implies an impossibility, if taken literally, then you need to ask the question, maybe, is it possible this is being used in a figurative sense? And I just alluded to that a second ago in Jeremiah chapter 1. In verse 18, there are several things said about the prophet Jeremiah who I think everybody understands, and even if you didn't understand, when you start reading his book, you'll understand Jeremiah is a human being with two legs, two ears, a voice, so on, right? But if you read Jeremiah 1 and verse 18, you might think that he's an object. It says, God speaking to Jeremiah, For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar. What does it mean there that God has transformed Jeremiah into a, an object, like he transformed Lot's wife into a pillar of salt? No, he's using figurative language. He's using analogies to compare Jeremiah and the, um, the words that he's going to speak and his demeanor toward Israel and how they'll, they'll view him. He's God's comparing uh, Jeremiah to something that's very strong, steadfast, immovable, he says, he goes on, um, I've made you this day uh, bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, and so forth. And so um, there are certain characteristics about a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall that Jeremiah is like whenever the, the Israelites hear him preach and, and look at him. So obviously here, the sense of these expressions, if we were to take them literally, then we'd have to rethink what we know about Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah is not actually a human then. Um, I thought that he was a prophet of God, but apparently he's a brick wall. <laughs> and that just is obviously an impossibility for him to be both at the same time. Um, there's another passage in Deuteronomy chapter 1 in verse 28 uh, that brings out, when you read this, it doesn't take two cents to realize this is a figure of speech. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 28 says this, um, Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. This is revisiting the event where Israel was about to enter the promised land, but they got scared. In the King James Version, I believe that phrase, um, the, Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, is translated... They have melted our hearts. Their hearts had melted. That's an, an expression. It's an idiom. Um, their hearts were not literally melting inside the cavity of their chest. This is an expression meant figuratively to express the idea very picturesquely that these people were very afraid because of the size of the Anakin in the land of Canaan when they saw them. Um, I'm, I hope not to beat a dead horse. Uh, let me just run through a, a few more, and then I want to land on Revelation 5 in just a second. In John 21, verse 25, John says there that there are so many signs that Jesus did while on the earth that if all of them were recorded in books, 
there wouldn't be a, enough books in the whole world to contain them. That's an example of hyperbole. That's exaggeration. And John doesn't mean that literally, but he's trying to express the fact and impress in a poetic way that Jesus did way more signs, miraculous signs, than what is in this gospel. Um, in 2 Peter 2, verse 13, Peter says about false prophets that they are spots and blemishes. Back to Jeremiah, these people did not get transformed into spots or blemishes on garments, but that's what they're like. This is a metaphor. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, just the next verse, says that these same people have eyes full of adultery. And that doesn't mean that there are people literally inside the um, orb of his eye committing sexual immorality. It means that these people um, have a great desire, a great lust for sexual immorality. And it's described as being right before their eye constantly, and their eyes being full of it. Uh, one that I would like to speak about for just a second is in Revelation 5, verse 6. It says there, and we're talking about the book of Revelation, hopefully we're on the same page that this is a book full of figures that are not meant to be taken literally. There are some things that are indeed literal in it, and so you have to use context and interpretation. But in Revelation 5, verse 6, it says, John speaking, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. There are several things here that cannot be literal. One, if you look at the lamb and you see who this lamb is and more things about him, um, this is not an actual lamb. This is Jesus, described as a lamb as he is elsewhere in Scripture. But besides that, I want to focus on the seven spirits of God. Here is a scene in Revelation 5 of John looking into the throne room of God. And in the throne room of God, of course, are many things, one of those being the Holy Spirit. And here, uniquely, the, the Holy Spirit is not described as a singular spirit, but rather seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, we're going to say other things and go through other rules that will help um, elucidate this fact more, but this seven spirits of God cannot be a literal identification of the fact that God has seven individual spirits. Um, this is the, the use of the word, or the number seven, in a figurative sense, as it is used many times in Scripture, uh, and it's often used in a figurative sense. Now, it is used in a literal sense. I'm not indicating that every time the number seven is used, it's used figuratively. It's used literally sometimes, but look at the context. And when we look at the greater context in this passage of what we know about the Holy Spirit, we know that He is singular um, and that He is not, indeed, seven in number. We also understand that we're talking about a book that's full of figures and is predominantly figurative, as opposed to literal, it flips kind of the script upside down compared to when you're reading the Gospels, which is predominantly literal, although there is some figurative language in it. And so we would not take these seven spirits of God to be seven individual spirits, but somehow the word seven, or rather the number seven, is demonstrating and, and captivating the, the perfection, the holiness of the Holy Spirit that is in God's throne room. That's enough to get us through the first rule. 
Uh, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I have several passages as proof for each one, but we'll move on. So the first rule was whenever the sense of a phrase or a word implies an impossibility, then it's smart then to consider very strongly that this is a figurative use of this word. The second phrase, or rather, I'm sorry, the second rule is when, whenever you're looking at a phrase in Scripture and the meaning of that phrase implies a contradiction with other things either in that very text or within the greater context of Scripture, then it very possibly and likely could be a figurative use of a word. So again, when the sense of the word or phrase implies a contradiction with other things that we know, then it's very possibly figurative language being used. I need to explain to you, if you aren't already familiar with the law of non-contradiction, you need to know about it. The law of non-contradiction is very straightforward, it's very plain, and I'm sure 200 years ago it was unnecessary to explain this law, but because of how, how much lunacy there is in the world today, unfortunately we need to define it. But that's the idea that two things that contradict one another cannot be true at the same time. Now one that's very present and obvious example of this is the transgender issue today that's very raging high just everywhere. A man that has male body parts cannot at the same time be a female, a female being someone with female body parts. They can't be both at the same time. You can be one or you can be the other. Um, that's not to get into um, hermaphrodites and all that and some technical discussion about transgenderism, but you get the idea. Um, the world can't be an accident and be designed at the same time. I can't say that I love you and then smack you across the face in vengeance at the same time. These all violate the law of non-contradiction. And that is what we're talking about here. Whenever you're reading a passage and you come to a phrase that's difficult to understand because it contradicts something else in Scripture that we know of, the logical idea is that it's probably figurative in some sense, and so pursue that if you, if you can. Wayne Jackson says whenever this comes up, it's good to ask the question, is it possible that the words of these verses that appear to contradict one another may be employed, in fact, in different ways? Now, some examples of this are in John 1, verse 29, where Jesus is called the Lamb of God. John sees him coming, and he tells Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Now, what we learn about Jesus before and after this verse is that he is a human being. He has two legs. He, has, he talks like a human. And so when John sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, nobody, nobody that I know of stutters to understand that this is not an actual lamb. And this is actually a metaphor um, for some describing some aspect of Jesus' character. Another example is the, the, the Holy Spirit and um, Him being described as seven spirits in Revelation 5-6. We already talked about that, so I'm not going to belabor that point. But another point that I'd like to talk about real quick is um, Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9 through 21, in this passage, it's very common for people to go here and to find the temple, the great temple that John sees at the end of time. And he sees here um, just some magnificent things. 
And that, again, is Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 21. And so people describe this as heaven. This is the place where, where um, God's people dwell at the end of eternity, or at the end of the earth's existence. However, in Revelation chapter 21, and if you back up to verse 2, it says this, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here's the first indication that this city, this temple, is not an actual temple, but as many things in the book of Revelation, it's a figurative symbol representing something else. He's, John's saying this was, it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that really makes no sense unless this, um, this temple maybe is not a temple and is actually representative of the people of God in their glorified state after the resurrection and being united with God. Now, I'm, I put that forth to you, and you might be thinking, Aaron, you're playing with me. <laughs> But then continue reading. In Revelation 21, same chapter, verse 9, we're going to read through verse 11. It says this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So we're talking about the bride, the Lamb's wife, which we know from Scripture in Revelation itself, as well as other Scripture, that this is a reference to God's people, right? The Lamb is not an actual Lamb. It's Jesus Christ. And the Lamb's wife is not an actual wife. It's a reference to the people of God. And he carried me away in the Spirit, verse 10, to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Here's this city again. But I thought he showed John the Lamb's wife, God's people. Keep reading. They were uh, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with 12 gates. So this, this city that has a great temple is described as the Lamb's wife, and it's consistently referred to with the um, third-person pronoun feminine, she, her. This temple is not an actual temple. It's not an actual city. It's the people of God in their glorified state. And the vision is using glorious symbols, a magnificent temple with just beautiful shining stones to describe the glory that God's people will experience in their resurrected state after the judgment, or after the resurrection. Now I come to this conclusion because the thing under consideration in this vision that John sees, it can't be um, the bride of Christ, God's people, and a literal city at the same time. And so again, the law of non-contradiction, two things can't uh, two opposing things can't be true at the same time or two contradictory things can't be true at the same time. And so we we consider that these are possibly figures being used and that seems to corroborate with the rest of scripture and the message that in this context John is trying to portray about the victory of God's people over Satan. And he's not so much describing the actual literal dimensions and materials of where God's people will dwell in heaven, but he is simply describing their glory, at least in these verses. Okay, so first two rules we've gone through. Let's go on to the third one. 
And that is when you're reading a scripture and the phrase or the word, the, the sense of that phrase suggests an absurdity, then we need to question whether or not this is actually literal language or whether it's figurative language being used. Here's a few examples. In Genesis chapter um, 1 and verse 29, the Bible describes the earth as having a face. It talks about the face of the earth. Well, does the earth have a face, a literal face with eyes and a nose and ears? Certainly not. And so that's absurd. And because it's absurd, we have to take the possibility that this is a figure of speech, and it is. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, it says about the world of Noah's day that the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Now, one thing that I've said about evil people all my life, and it's still true, and I wouldn't take this back even now, is that even wicked people, and especially false prophets, they say some true things every now and then. And they have some good qualities about them. They wouldn't be a very persuasive prophet unless there was at least something to admire about them or some nugget of truthfulness in what they're saying. Now, these people got up from sleep just like I did, and if they did, um, they probably had blank thoughts or just trivial thoughts that in and of themselves were not evil. This is absurd to think that they literally had only evil thoughts continually every single millisecond of the day. This must be a figurative expression, helping us to understand how wicked these people were. In Daniel 7, verse 14, it says about the Son of Man that languages should serve Him. Languages are not animate. Languages cannot literally serve the Son of Man or anyone. And so this is absurd. So it must be a figure of speech. To In this case, it's describing peoples of all languages, all nations. And then the last example that I'll use is um, in Joshua chapter 14, verse 8. Again, going back to when Israel was approaching Canaan and they got scared because of the Anakim and the giants in the land, it said that it made the hearts of the people melt. Again, we used that illustration before, but this is an absurd statement, and it must be figurative. You'll see, obviously, some overlap between some of these rules, but there's also some uniqueness to them. Now, for practice, what I would tell you is to do this. Go to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27 and read that verse. And then go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26 and read that verse. Notice how Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper, specifically in that verse, he talks about how Jesus took the cup. And here, everything about this appears to be literal. He took a literal cup and he blessed it and gave it to them. It said, drink from it. Literally, drink from the cup. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Jesus tells his disciples to drink the cup. In that reference, in that version, obviously you can't drink a cup, so there is some figure of speech being used there. Now, interestingly enough, um, the part of Jackson's book that I don't think is great, and I think may even be inaccurate, is his... Um, when he talks about metonymy. That's a figure of speech that's being used in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Um, you might be well informed to know that Wayne Jackson does believe that it's okay to worship um, the Lord's Supper with multiple cups. And so he, he has uh, perhaps an overly simplistic view of what metonymy is. 
And um, he would say, very likely, now he's dead now, but he would say that in Matthew 26, verse 27, that metonymy is being used and that the cup that Jesus took and told his disciples to drink from it was metonymy. And, and again, this is not a literal cup, but it's a figurative um, expression, and Jesus is really referring to the fruit of the vine in the cup. I don't want to get into um, a convoluted discussion of all this right here. I just want to give this to you as practice to go and read those two passages, Matthew 26, 27, and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, and ask the question, is the cup in this passage and in that passage literal? Or is it a figure of speech in one passage, or is it a figure of speech in both passages? Now, something else that Jackson says, and I would agree with this, is one may not extrapolate that a figurative use in one place implies a figurative use in every place. Unfortunately, that's what people who use multiple cups and advocate for that practice do. They, they go to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. They correctly identify that there is a figure of speech being used in that passage, and so they construe that in every place that the Lord's Supper talks about a cup, that there is some figurative expression being, being employed. And that's not the case. That violates his own rule. Well, anyways, the rule we just got finished with is number three, when the sense suggests an absurdity. Okay, number four. Um, the fourth rule is when the, you're looking at a passage of Scripture and the word or phrase, the literal interpretation of it would imply unethical conduct on the behalf of God especially, or, or advocating unethical conduct uh, from God's people, then that it's very likely consider that this is figurative language being used. Now, a couple examples that I could give you are um, in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23, God put a lying spirit in the malice of certain false prophets. Consider that this is some type of a figure of speech or figurative language talking about um, how God was influencing men in this passage. Wayne Jackson has a good little paragraph on this in his book. But this would imply, if taken literally, that God um, caused people to sin or that God deceived people, and that would be accusing God of unethical conduct. So it's very um, wise in this case to consider a figurative use of language in this passage. Isaiah 45 and verse 7 says in the King James Version, and I think maybe the ASV, that God created evil. In other versions, it says that he created chaos or he created darkness. But if it did say God created evil, that would accuse God of unethical conduct again. Consider, because of what we know about the nature of God and what he can and cannot do, and harmonizing scripture that this is a figurative use or a figure of speech. In Isaiah, a, a, a book of very heavily figurative language. In Jeremiah 4, verse 10, it says that God deceived his people. Again, consider that this is a figurative use of language because God cannot deceive, he cannot sin. And finally, another example is in Ezekiel 20, verse 25, that God gave his people statutes that were not good. Again, there must be some figurative sense of this phrase of this sentence um, Ezekiel 20, verse 25. So consider these things whenever the interpretation that you've come across, the literal interpretation, accuses God of unethical conduct. The fifth thing, the fifth rule, 
is whenever you're looking at a phrase or a word in Scripture and the nature of the book that the phrase is found in indicates symbolism is being used heavily, then it's very possible that the phrase in that book that you're reading is symbolic because it's in a book of symbols and figures. Now to illustrate the point, in Ezekiel chapter tw- uh, 1 rather, and verse 1, the very beginning of the book indicates that this book is a book full of symbols. Because it starts off like this. I'm turning over there real quick. It says, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I, that's Ezekiel, was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. The heavens were open, and he saw visions of God, or a vision of God. Were the heavens literally opened? No, again, this is part of the vision that he saw, indicating a non-literal aberration. Um, Daniel indicates the same thing in his book, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28. There are several statements throughout his book that he sees visions a lot, like Ezekiel did. In Daniel 2 verse 28, um, he's interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream or his vision, and he says... But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And he goes on to indicate that the statute in his vision was indicative or representative of kingdoms of the earth, him being represented in the head of gold of that image. So he saw a vision of symbolic things, and uh, this is a heavy theme in the book of Daniel. Chapter 7 and verse 10 uh, continues this idea. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. So again, more visions full of symbols that troubled him because he didn't know what they meant. Uh, Chapter 8 and verse 15, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. But he wasn't a man, he was an angel. Um... So he has another symbolic vision, and the meaning is troubling him because the things are not uh, literal one-to-one meanings. They have figurative meanings, and he's trying to understand what they mean. So this is prevalent in the book of Daniel, and it tells you that this is a book full of symbols. The nature of the book is symbolic. And so we're going to flip the hermeneutic in that case and assume that when it says something that it's employing figurative language most of the time, and it will be the exception whenever something is meant literally. Now, the narrative sections of the book of Daniel are also easy to spot, so it's not very difficult to tell whenever we're going from literal histories in the book to figurative symbols, but um, that's just a little tidbit before we move on. Revelation chapter 1 and the book of Revelation, we should know, is a very symbolic book, very figurative. Some people take it um, very literally, dispensationalist. Uh, do that. In Revelation 1 verse 1 though, John sets the scene and tells us what type of book we're reading when it says there, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The word for signified in this verse means to show by a sign, to indicate, to make known. So the book is a book of signs. Um, and it's just full of symbols. And that's very easy to tell because several places in the book of Revelation, the author will make known 
that this thing, a dragon, is not literally a dragon. It is representative, a symbol of something else. And that actually brings me right into the last rule of interpretation, the common sense rule that when the author says this is a symbol, well, it's a symbol. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus has been speaking in parables, and the disciples ask Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Parables are stories that are not meant to be taken literally, but they teach a principle. And so they're like, what do these mean? Why do you speak in hidden parables? So there you're given indication that these things are figurative in some way they represent something else. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21 to 31, read that whole section, and there the Galatians are being taught not to go back to the law of Moses. And to illustrate the point, to teach the point, Paul is trying to teach the Galatians that you shouldn't want to be under the bondage of the old law when Christ offers you freedom. And so he uses an allegory to teach this principle. To be under the law of Moses is to be, in the allegory, the son of Abraham's concubine Hagar, uh, who was under bondage. And to be free from the law of Moses, to be free from bondage, is to be the son of promise, the son of Sarah. And he indicates this very clearly in verse 24 and verse 25 that he's using allegory and symbols. It says, which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So Paul is being very clear that we're talking about symbols here, not actually Abraham's wife Hagar or the son's Ishmael of Hagar. Uh, that's very clear. Uh, there's a couple more passages real quick, and then we'll be done. In John chapter 16, verse 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room. And this is a great verse to teach the idea that, yes, there is figurative language in the Bible. And Jesus just comes out right and says it. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So obviously, the last three chapters, he's been using figures of speech heavily. In Revelation 12, verse 9, in the vision of the war in heaven, it says there very clearly that the dragon is actually a symbol for Satan. Uh, let me read that verse expressly. It says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. One last example I'll give you is in Revelation 1, verse 20. It's very clear that these lampstands that are mentioned are not actual lampstands, but they represent, rather, churches. Revelation 1, 20, Jesus is the speaker, and it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And then he goes on to um, give a, a speech to each one of these churches. So the churches are real churches, but the lampstands are not real lampstands. And they point us to some aspect about the witness of these churches. So those are the uh, six. Those are the six rules of interpreting figurative language. Let's run back through these real quick, and I'm going to use the short uh, title for each one of these rules. Number one, when the sense implies an impossibility, it's probably figurative. When the sense implies a contradiction, it's probably figurative. When the sense suggests an absurdity, it's probably figurative. When a literal sense implies an ethical conduct on the behalf of God or His people, it's probably figurative. 
when the nature of the book indicates symbolism, the language is probably figurative. And when the author specifies a symbol in the book, well, it's very definitely figurative. <laughs> so these are six rules of interpretation. You don't need any source for these. They're common sense. They're duh, aha moments. And they should guide your reading. I would encourage you to be careful about interpreting something as figurative. Um, you need to have good reason for that. And uh, we can come up with very dangerous doctrines if we interpret literal statements as figurative and figurative statements as literal. Wayne Jackson has a, about four chapters on dangers and dangerous interpretations that come from people making that mistake. I've made that mistake before. I always have to be careful about how I interpret the figurative and the literal. I encourage you to as well. Well, that'll do it for the 27th episode of the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this study. If you have any questions, just email them to me at ambatty at yahoo.com. I can see how this episode might give you questions, and so I hope that it answers more questions than it gives you, but because we are, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to approach all that this subject um, contains, then yeah, you might have lots of questions, and hopefully we can give you some answers, point you in the right direction with the right resources. Please rate the podcast. That gets it out there, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please share it with friends. Tell them about it. Share it on social media. And until next time, this has been the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>